All right, gents, welcome to another episode of the Playing to Win series, number 27. I'm joined by my friend, Ronan Levy. How are you doing, brother? Yeah, I'm doing well, man. Good to see you. Been a long time. It's been a, been a while since we've connected. Uh, we've known each other for quite a few years, but let me just do a quick little intro on um, your bio here to introduce you, because I just pasted sure. it. I know a lot of people don't read it, but an entrepreneur and a visionary, Ronan is one of the founders of Field Trip, which is what we'll be talking about uh, quite a bit in this broadcast. Uh, concurrent with his work at Field Trip, he's a partner at Grassfed Ventures, a venture capital and advisory firm focused on the cannabis and biotech industries, is a chief strategy officer and member of the board of directors for Trait Biosciences, a leading biotech company in the hemp and cannabis industries. And prior to current roles, Ronan along with Joseph uh, Hannon and Ryan, co-founded Canadian Cannabis Clinics, uh, which I'm going to tell you about an interesting story and an opportunity that I missed out on, uh, in Cannabis Rx, the latter of which was acquired by Aurora Cannabis Incorporated, New York Stock Exchange, uh, ticker ACB, in 2016, after which she served as Senior Vice President, Business and Corporate Affairs for Aurora, a lawyer by training. Royer, sorry, Ronan started his career as corporate lawyer at Blake Castles and Graydon and legal counsel at CTV Globe Media holds a Juris Doctor and a Bachelor of Commerce degree, both at the U University of Toronto. What's up, brother? How much? Yeah, that's a, a mouthful. I got to shorten that down, that's for sure. You got a you got a way more impressive bio than I do, I'll tell you that. So. Uh, I, I don't know about <laughs> that, but uh, I appreciate the compliment. So um, let's kind of do like a little bit of a Batman origin story, because I like to introduce a lot of the characters that I put on this Plane to Win series. And we didn't have a lot of time to talk, Ronan and I, before kind of leading up to this, because we're texting on some other stuff that we're working on together but um i thought it would be a, a great fit for him because of the way that he lives his life i've often talked to you guys about playing to win versus playing not to lose um did you ever do any work with um fireweed and colin colored no i haven't Korea? no so colin introduced us when he was tearing us apart um at a retreat that i was at with a bunch of guys from eo who you'd all know excuse me <clears throat> Um, you know, this concept of, of in life, you either play to win or you can play not to lose. And it might sound like the same thing, but they're two very different behaviors. Um, so I like to bring guys onto this um, playlist, onto this stream to really talk about how they play to win at life. And um, you're you're just one of those top shelf guys that, that that just seems to knock it out of the park one one venture after the other. Thanks, um, man. Appreciate that. I, I first met you at an EO event. I don't know when it was. It must have been like 2011 or 12. I think it was at the Brickworks or something like that. And you were talking about how do you how do you utilize lawyers better in your business? Yeah, yeah. I think that's. I remember that. I don't remember much these days, but I do remember that uh, that session. Yeah, and um, one of the big takeaways that I got from that, which I've shared with a few friends since, was a lot of a lot of what happens in business is you'll get these notices in the mail from you know another company, another organization, entity, whatever that wants you to change your behavior. They want to force you to change what it is that you're doing, usually in their interest, but they don't want to go so far to register a claim in court and you know force you to do it through uh, you know the court system. So mm -hmm. they try to scare you with a letter. And one of the things that I learned from you that day, which I've used quite a few times, and, it's, and it saved me money probably at least six out of seven times, you just cool. run it through the shredder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. You basically yeah. said, look, if it's not got a registered claim to it, don't waste your time because they're not serious about it. Don't even respond, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. It's it's uh, it's a philosophy. I mean, like, listen, I had to learn it. I, I'm a lawyer by training, um, so and and it's interesting. I mean, the way you describe it as like playing to win versus playing not to lose. It's like most lawyers, I'd say 95 percent, if not more, uh, are playing not to lose. They're trying to minimize risk, avoid you know uh, confrontation try and settle things as quickly as and easily as possible, which certainly there's rationale for in certain circumstances. But, um, you know, if you're starting from that position, you're always starting from a back foot, right? So always go in aggressive. Like it, the most important thing, especially when it comes to the law, is that there's the letters of the law of what you can and cannot do according to, you know, whatever has been legislated. But the truth is, is we don't live in a world where if you break the law, you're immediately penalized, right? And maybe we'll get to that one day. Maybe we'll live in, live in minority report. But in the meantime, we live in a world where there's a lot of gray area between 
you know, how the law is written and how the law gets enforced or how the rules get enforced doesn't necessarily be, mean to be a law. Uh, and if you're willing to play within the boundaries of those two lines, there's a lot of opportunity to really do cool things, grow businesses, take opportunities, you know, position yourself for success uh, as opposed to just trying to avoid a fight. Yeah, um, really intelligent approach to dealing with business strategies. Like, how is how is your legal training, like operating as a lawyer, affected you as a entrepreneur? Because I mean, you think and act a lot differently than a lot of lawyers that I know, and you think and act a lot differently when it comes to your approach to life and business. When it comes to business, too, like, do you see it as an advantage? Obviously, or yeah, I do. I mean, I think being a lawyer has. And going to law school, I don't think taught me anything. It taught me, you know, it was a good rigorous exercise. It was like going to the gym and like being forced to do a lot of mental exercises. I don't think it equipped me at all to, to become a lawyer. Um, but what it did show me is, you know, the inside of the beast to some degree, understanding the mentality of lawyers and how they think and, and how they approach life. I mean, most people go to law school because it's a nice, safe, conservative path to uh, make a good living, right? You're smart, you're capable, but you don't want to take risks on, on life. Um, and, and so you go to law school by and large. And then listen, a lot, there are some happy lawyers. I would say most lawyers are not terribly enthused with their careers, but you know, it's a, it's a comfortable path. And for some people that's fine, you know, if that's the path you want to go on. Um, but you know, there is typically a personality around most lawyers. And, and so when you realize that their approach is going to be pretty consistent, which is follow the rules, do it the right way, follow the process. Uh, it gives you a great opportunity to say like, well, I, I know what that person's going to do. You know, it comes down to sort of just basic game theory, which is if you can anticipate the actions of the other party, then you can always be two steps ahead. And so because most lawyers are fairly predictable in their approach to it, um, you know, you can you can take advantage of that. And and in the same token, it doesn't have to be lawyers and, and most regulators as well uh, tend to follow a given path. So if you're willing to take on some degree of regulatory or legal risk, um, which most entrepreneurs are doing, you know, most people think of it, oh my God, you're breaking the law, but a perfect example, probably the best example of a company that was willing to operate outside of the law and to great successes uber you know they operated globally in violation of all sorts of municipal regulations knowing that uh for a while they'd get away with it and then eventually the regulators would push back but by the time that happened they would have developed enough of a fan base enough of a customer base that they'd have a position of strength to, to negotiate to you know create a, a world or a paradigm that may not be ideally suited for their business model uh but certainly a lot better than what existed before they went into that given market um and and so that's the kind of mindset and i think going to law school and and understanding that environment has, has helped me see opportunities in that respect um i want to take you back to your uh position as legal counsel at CTV Globe Media? Because I mm -hmm. think that's where, like that was a parent company for that dating site? No, that, that was Avid Life Media. Uh, that was the Avid parent Life. company. CTV was not part of it, yeah. Okay, so um, yeah, so you're involved in Avid Life Media, sorry. Um, yep. You told a, a few stories to us um, around your time there. Uh, what did Avid Life Media manage? What was that dating site all about? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't openly talk about that right now, so I'll speak vaguely about it. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, we, we operated a bunch of dating sites often in, in various uh, unique uh, niches or, or uh, um, particular communities. And, uh, you know, they were very successful at creating awareness uh, through taking cheeky approaches to, to marketing and, and PR uh, and recognizing that there are opportunities um, to do things that would create a PR opportunity um, far greater than the advertising. So one time we offered to... Um, you know, wrap a streetcar in a banner um, uh, 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 around the streetcar uh, for one of our sites. And uh, we knew that initially it'd probably get rejected, but to our surprise, uh, they actually said yes. And so we looked at it and we said, well, we could either pay the $25,000 or whatever it was to wrap the streetcar in, in this particular advertisement, or we could leak it to the media because that would be just juicy enough for the media to say like, hey, this company is now wrapping a streetcar. Is the TTC actually okay with it and get much more awareness and, and publicity uh, for free than paying the $25,000? Or, you know, one time we uh, 
where we were, there was a, a well-known actor uh, who had voiced advertisements that most of you probably heard of. This was probably 10 or 11 years ago. Um, but it turned out the, the, the actual ad you heard uh, was this particular actor's voice. Um, but what happened is the company who was making the ad um, had initially approached this actor who wanted some obscene amount of money just to audition for the part. Um, and so that company decided to be like, okay, well, we'll find someone who sounds like you and, and record the ad anyway, because we don't want to pay just to have you audition. Um, and so they prepared the ad with this sound-alikes voice and, and sort of submitted it to the actor and said, listen, you can do it or we're going to go forward with this. And the actor said, okay, I'll do it. And they came to a much more reasonable approach. We subsequently found out about it. Uh, and so in the same kind of context, the same kind of mindset, uh, we got the sound-alike. We recorded an ad, you know, started playing it on the, on the radio in the U.S knowing that the following would happen people would start saying like hey is this actor doing an ad for this particular dating site uh, which would probably be shocking to most people's sensibilities um, and we did and there's a whole bunch of PR that followed and then inevitably we're expecting a, a letter from his lawyers which we got saying hey you're inappropriately using this actor's persona please stop and so we did you know, and we got millions of dollars worth of free publicity and PR uh, with no consequence because we knew the lawyer the letter would come, we would stop, and then it just doesn't make sense for people to litigate beyond that um, because it's too expensive. There's no guarantees in litigation, and and so it was a uh, it was a great cheeky opportunity to create some awareness. Now, it, you know, with hindsight, at the time it seemed like a great idea. In hindsight, you know, I'm kind of come to the place where it's probably not fair or appropriate to use someone's identity in that way to benefit yourself. Um, but these are just examples of things you can do to, um, you know, push boundaries or, or another good example is we would always offer to sponsor, you know, uh, major events, you know, and then uh, we would get rejected um, or we would just leak the fact that we're putting in an offer to, to sponsor a major event um, to the media. And then you'd see it in the news the next day that uh, this dating site is uh, <laughs> offering to sponsor the, the Super Bowl or the World Cup or whatever it was. Um, and uh, again, knowing that, we were taking risks. We were wading into regulatory gray zones, but there was really no consequences that would come back to bite us at any point. So we took advantage mm -hmm. of those opportunities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, it's starting to sound a lot like what Ryan Halliday did with, um, you know, with his career with that clothing company. I can't remember what it was. I think it was American, American apparel. Yeah. Apparel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very, very clever marketing strategies. And, and you kind of have to, I mean, when you're getting started in business and you don't have a network, you don't have connections. I mean, you kind of have to be more innovative than any of your competitors if if you want to get a foothold in it. Um, and you've and you've done that time and time and time again. Um, to kind of share that story about uh, cannabis clinics, I'm sorry, Canadian cannabis clinics and Canvas RX. Um, I remember you came over to my office with your partner at the time with a investment yeah, check to um, put some money into that when you guys were just starting to raise your uh, first first rounds of funding. Mm -hmm. And it was the same week that I had another lawyer come into my office, try to buy my book of business for cents on a dollar. I think you know who I'm talking about. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> um, you know, I looked at that, I was like, dude, they're not going to approve this, man. They're not going to legalize weed in Canada. That's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are in 2020. It's like fully legal. You can buy whatever you want from, like the government is now the drug dealer. Yeah. Um, you know, you came up with this concept of um, kind of kind of cracking the legislative code that was coming through the pipelines for the approval for medicinal use. Um, and I mean, <sighs> embarrass me here, but I know all the information is public, but Obviously, I passed on the opportunity as an early investor, mm -hmm. and um, you know, you sold to a much larger corporation, Aurora Cannabis. How much did I lose out on? I mean, you must have walked away with a triple, quadruple, even larger digit multiple, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm not so good at doing the math in my head, but um, you would have so invested at a, a six million dollar valuation. I think you were talking about maybe investing, let's say, a hundred grand yeah. at a six million dollar valuation. 
we sold the company for a purchase price of $37 million. So there's a six bagger right there. But the thing was, is that a big chunk of the purchase price was paid in Aurora stock at 40 cents. Uh, over the next two years, Aurora went from 40 cents to $16. So with that, that's another 20 bagger on top of that. So yeah. you're, you're, you know, your hundred grand could have turned into a lot of money is, yeah. is what it boiled down to. And in that case, you know, to be fair, it wasn't that I was, uh, I, I didn't, it wasn't a legal kind of analysis. I just kind of saw where the, the trend line was pointing, which was cannabis was becoming ubiquitous. You know, they had essentially created a program where they were creating these large corporations growing cannabis. You know, once you create that kind of capital markets dynamic, um, it's going to be hard to turn back the engine. Uh, that, that was the insight there. I think, you know, one of my, and it has nothing to do with being a lawyer. I just, I think I've been gifted with an ability to see where trend lines are going by and large in the future. Um, and, uh, getting in front of that and certainly, you know, uh, from cannabis to now field trip, that's one of those things, which was, this is going to happen. You know, most people don't realize it was going to happen. And for a long time I wasn't convinced, but then certain things fell into place. And now like, you know, I guess that was six years ago we met in your office and, and we're on the cusp of legalizing cannabis and, and, you know, six years later, uh, we're on the cusp of legalizing psychedelics, uh, as well. Um, you know, which yeah. is crazy. I, I seven years ago, I never would have guessed we'd be sitting in this position. But uh, no, I was, dude. Know. I was sitting there going, "This is this is not." I I just can't see this happening. I just can't see them allowing you know the Canadian population to just you know recreationally. I mean, like even at the time you were talking about medicinal use, which which had uh, you know proven peer reviewed benefits. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it existed, right? So. And then it was kind of supposed to lean into um, recreational use. And that, of course, happened very quickly soon after. So, um, yeah, bravo. I mean, like you, you know, you, you, uh, you know, you took a stake in the industry. You saw a trend coming and it ended up working out for you. I mean, um, had I had I invested that hundred grand uh, at that time, I could have probably bought a Ferrari LaFerrari, a Porsche 918, uh, maybe a McLaren P1 and a Bugatti Veyron just to kind of top it all off instead of the one R8 that I've got right now. But, you know, um, I didn't have a crystal ball to appear into the future. None of us do. It's just one of those things that you have to take uh, take a stab at in life. And at that time, you were you were playing hard to win and it, and it was a bit of a gamble, but it, you know, it paid off big time for you. Um, you know, thankfully, with with the organizations and some of the guys that, you know, we've all talked to and, you um, you know, been at uh, men's retreats and uh, groups with, I also made some subsequent investments that still caught like the top end of the trend um, and made Great. some money there as well. But uh, talk a little bit more about the um, new business that you're running, uh, Field Trip Psychedelics. Um, I know that it's been a couple of years in, uh, full disclosure, I am an investor. I didn't, I didn't become stupid this time and pass up <laughs> on it. So I've gotten in on rounds of funding, but talk a little bit more to the audience about what, what field trip is and what it plans to do and what's all happening there. Yeah, I'll, I'll kind of tell the narrative. So uh, we started Canadian Cannabis Clinics and Canvas RX. We sold that to Aurora in 2016, uh, helped Aurora grow into one of the largest cannabis producers globally uh, over the next couple of years. But by the middle of 2018, we kind of saw the writing on the wall that the cannabis industry had become quite inflated and is probably going to go through a bumpy period and and our earnouts through uh the sale of our business had had been met so there wasn't a whole lot of rationale for us to stick around so we left and um started grass-fed ventures which was really just a an avenue to lease an office and start making some strategic investments and doing some advisory work not really knowing what we were planning to do and um much like the initiation of Canadian cannabis clinics and cannabis RX back then, what happened was I was working with uh, Joseph and Helena and the guys who would eventually be partners, but I was a lawyer. I was, I mean, I, I've always been fairly activist as a lawyer um, in terms of being very involved in the business side of things. But in this particular case, I was advising them also on, you know, what, areas of of opportunity you know this was still very much the tech bubble time to some degree uh startup mania was in full effect and i was trying to guide them into different directions and then you know they um 
they after one meeting where we reviewed a whole list of opportunities uh i was putting my code on apparently i said all of the opportunities they were considering were terrible i don't remember being so so brash but uh, it's possible um you know they said well there's this one other idea you know the laws around cannabis are changing and there's an opportunity to do something with cannabis and they're like ah but it seems so sketchy cannabis is so so sketchy and I was like, guys, you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm a corporate lawyer, which don't have the best of reputations. Um, I worked for this dating company, the aforementioned dating company. Uh, and I had also started my first business, which was a cash for gold business, which also doesn't have a great reputation. And I'm like, if this is legal now, you know, cannabis is the best opportunity I'm ever going to see. You don't see a multi-billion, if not trillion dollar industry go from black market to perfectly legal almost overnight. Um, you guys got to do something in the space. And if you don't, I'm going to do so. Uh, uh, and so I cajoled them for a while, and eventually we kind of all joined forces, and, and that became Canvas RX and Canadian Cannabis Clinics. Um, so fast forward to middle of 2018, we just left Aurora. We've got grass-fed ventures going. We're looking for new opportunities. Uh, Joseph, my business partner, the CEO of Field Trip, uh, had a meeting with a woman named Judy Bloomstock, who was trying to raise money for a pharma company that was doing new formulations around psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. Um, and he comes out of that meeting and he's like, "Yeah, this, you know, Judy was looking to raise money for this, you know, but uh, I don't know, like magic mushrooms, really." And I had that same kind of light bulb moment being like this is happening and it's like i think so so i mean judy she pitched us on her idea but told us what else was happening around psychedelic which i hadn't been advised of which was um you know uh peter teal had invested in compass pathways which went public last week and is now worth 1.3 billion dollars michael pollan had written his book how to change your mind which if you haven't read it you certainly should if you have any interest in psychedelics and, and the emerging industry uh and maps had just been granted breakthrough therapy designation so maps is doing a clinical trial looking at the use of mdma or or street drug ecstasy more commonly known as um looking at ptsd and the results around that are just mind-blowing you know psychedelics are infinitely more uh, effective than current treatments and i'm like oh, we got to do something in this this is amazing and and what really inspired me at that time was judy described a single psilocybin assisted psychotherapy session as being like 10 years of therapy in a single session and i'm like this is something the world needs you know i've done a lot of work on myself uh both from like emotional growth and, and meditation and, and therapy just for my own purposes to leave live a happier healthier you know more productive life and and so if you can take all the work i've done over the last 15 years and shrink it into a couple of sessions that was something that i thought was going to be huge and, and that the world really needed um and uh, interestingly, at the time, there are some online sites popping up that were openly selling psilocybin mushrooms in Canada, which really surprised me. But it, I think it's reflective of the kind of very liberal attitudes uh, towards uh, at least low harm drugs like psilocybin and LSD um, are reflected in Canada. It, interestingly, and it, it kind of fell under the radar and I'm surprised by it, but I'm going to do my best to raise it. Just a couple of weeks ago, the Crown Attorney in Canada gave a mandate to all Crown prosecutors across Canada to not prosecute simple possession of drugs. So we actually live in a world where you have decriminalized possession uh, in Canada. Um, no one's talking about it, but that's a, a pretty interesting evolution of um, our society that possession of drugs is essentially no longer criminalized. I mean, it's still technically illegal, but if they don't enforce it, going back to some of the first principles we we're talking about on this conversation, you got to query whether it's actually still illegal or not. But Anyway, uh, at that time, we kind of looked at it. We realized that psychedelics, uh, the research around psychedelics was incredibly persuasive, much more persuasive than you see around cannabis. And so we started thinking about how we build a business in this space. You know, it was, it was hard because unlike cannabis, when we got into cannabis, the laws had changed already. They changed much more rapidly after that, but there was a legal business to be built. With psychedelics, the laws hadn't changed and still hadn't changed, but you know, with uh, some determination and the benefit of some time and, and a lot of conversations with people like Rick Doblin and Michael Pollan and the folks at the Beckley Foundation in the UK, you know, we kind of eventually formulated uh, the initial uh, skeleton of a business model. And um, and that became Field Trip. And, and so what Field Trip has become is the world's first vertically integrated company in psychedelics and psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. We're really trying to... Um, be at the forefront of the development and delivery of psychedelic therapies. And that involves building out a clinical infrastructure. So right now we're in the process of building out uh, field trip health psychedelic hubs that will deliver psychedelic medicine. Um, 
It's not typically known as a psychedelic, but it is actually a psychedelic molecule that ketamine, which is legal and prescribable in, in North America, um, exists and can be used in psychedelic therapies. And so our clinics rolling out right now are providing ketamine assisted psychotherapy, but the business rationale is really to uh, position them such that when MDMA or psilocybin get legalized or approved, we'll be right there and we can just turn on that engine. And certainly there's going to be a lot more interest, I think, in psilocybin and MDMA than, than ketamine, but that's actually quite shifting. Um, but then we also decided to get actively involved in cultivation of psilocybin producing mushrooms, at least on the research side of things through a partnership at the University of West Indies, uh, where we're building the wor world's first research facility studying psilocybin producing mushrooms, uh, as well as embarking on our own drug development uh, efforts through, you know, the classic FDA Health Canada approval pathways with our first molecule, uh, which is FT104, kind of an unsexy name. But what we did is we looked at the known still elicit psychedelic molecules, uh, assessed if there are ways to improve them um, to deliver differential or preferential experiences, uh, and did some work with chemistry and, and came up with FT-104. And so that's in the early stages of drug development as well. And um, so we've got ketamine approved for medicinal uses for um, psychotherapy treatment. Um, how far away is psilocybin from the same sort of approval? Yeah, I, I should be clear just so everyone's talking on the same language. Ketamine is a, is approved as an anesthetic. It was approved in the 1960s. It's incredibly safe uh, when used in the right therapeutic context. Um, for most people, there are certain contraindications, but it's quite safe and it's being, and so even though it's approved as an anesthetic, it's being used, been used off label as a treatment for depression over the last five to 10 years with great effect to the point where the, the former director of the National Institute of Mental Health uh, said that uh, ketamine was the most promising development in the treatment of depression in the last 50 years or something along those lines. So is that a, I, is that a, um, a pharmaceutically manufactured chemical or is it from, you know, like mushrooms, like psilocybin is? Yeah, no, ket ketamine is a synthetic molecule, so it doesn't okay. exist in nature. Um, uh, so yeah, so it's it's legal and prescribable. It's actually quite commonly prescribed if you have a kid and your kid breaks your breaks a bone and goes to the emergency room. Uh, often doctors will give ketamine uh, as an anesthetic to help manage the pain. So that's kind of the safety profile associated with ketamine. Uh, but they found after giving ketamine, which was used quite extensively in the Vietnam War, actually, uh, that people reported that their mood significantly improved after having ketamine, after taking ketamine. And, and based on that anecdotal evidence, a lot of research kind of looked into are there mental health applications to ketamine. Um, and that's really what's kind of emerged over the last 10 years uh, or so. So it's, it's perfectly legal and prescribable and, and quite safe. But the, the real interest, I think, these days is in the classic psychedelics like psilocybin and MDMA. Um, and you'll see legal access to these almost certainly um, sometime in the next two to five years. Uh, and there's a number of different ways that that may happen. Uh, the first is um, MDMA is actually in a phase three clinical trials. I was actually just speaking with Rick Doblin, uh, who is the founders of, founder of MAPS, um, which is an, a nonprofit organization that's actually conducting these clinical trials uh, that have been approved by the FDA. Uh, and they're in phase three, which means they're in the last leg of getting approval to use MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for the treatment of PTSD. Uh, and the results that they're showing in other studies are just fantastic. You know, in their phase two, they saw that 70% um, of people who had chronic severe PTSD within six months of a single, I think it's a single, it may have been two, but we'll say a single MDMA-assisted psychotherapy session ha had total resolution solution of all symptoms. Basically, they were cured of PTSD uh, and generally their mental health improved further over time uh, because the experience not only helped them deal with their PTSD, it gave them the skills to deal with future traumas as well uh, and process that more effectively. Um, and so their trials should be done. Uh, I think they, I think Rick said that they expect the results for the first leg of the trial at the end of this month. Um, you'll probably see approval uh, for MDMA sometime in the next couple of years. I think they expect that uh, um, they'll have approval to administering ketamine legally, um, uh, or sorry, not ketamine, MDMA legally for PSD by 2022, 2023. There are also clinical trials going underway right now, Compass Pathways, which I mentioned earlier, um, 
uh, is in phase 2B of their clinical trial, and they expect that, assuming it goes well, and, and based on all the anecdotal evidence out there, it's going to, uh, they expect to have approval for using uh, psilocybin for treating treatment-resistant depression uh, by the end of 2025-2026. So that's the sort of FDA drug development uh, pathway, uh, but that's not the only thing that's in motion. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, we're also seeing states like Oregon uh, actually has a ballot initiative that'll be on the election uh, ballot in, in November uh, to create the first legal market for psilocybin services. So uh, much like a cannabis market, um, people would be able to go and have psilocybin trips. A little bit different than cannabis uh, because you wouldn't be able to buy it and take it home. You'd have to go to a licensed facility where they take you through an experience, but very similar in that anyone over the age of 21, as long as you don't have a contraindication, would be able to access these services. Um, and so there's a very realistic possibility that Oregon will create a legal market for psilocybin this year. Now it'll take a year or two before that actually gets implemented and created, but the laws will have effectively changed. And in Canada, um, you know, we tend to be a little bit behind California, Oregon, and Colorado, but what we do well up here is we do it federally and don't create any of those cross-jurisdictional issues that the U.S. seems to be so fond of. Um, just over the last couple of weeks, the Minister of Health has granted six people um, who have terminal illnesses uh, the right to use psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy for end-of-life distress. Um, so... Uh, based on that, a for those six people, I think it's wonderful news that uh, they'll help. Ha they'll have an opportunity to uh, help manage the anxiety around dying. And if you listen to a lot of the studies and reports of what the experience on psilocybin is, people often report a sense of unity, a sense of safety, a sense of like connection to the universe, and it helps relieve the fear of dying because it makes it feel like you're not alone, that you're part of something bigger, that your body is just a you know a vehicle, but your soul lives on. You know whether mm -hmm. there's truth to that or not is for everyone to make their own determinations, but but um, the people who have these experiences feel much less afraid of dying uh, afterwards. Um, so you have these six people who have been granted access, you know, certainly based on that, you're going to see a lot more people asking for access as well. And that's going to expand the scope. And so I think you'll see de facto legalization in Canada around psilocybin, at least for end of life distress um, sometime over the next year or two. Um, so there's lots of different ways that we're going to see legal access to psychedelics. So I've seen, um, like I've seen Kevin O'Leary talk about his investments. Is he an investor with Field Trip or is he with another organization? No, he invested in a company called MindMed. Um, MindMed is a little bit different than us in a few respects. Uh, one is they're just drug development. They're not they're not interested in the delivery of care, which we are. Um, and then at least their primary focus is on a molecule called 18MC, which is, you know, there's a big debate within the psychedelic industry and the psychedelic community uh, as to whether you need the psychedelic experience to actually get the results you're looking for or whether, um, you know, just uh, the molecules, the, the the drug interaction with your neurobiology is enough to achieve the effect. And so 18MC is actually a form of Ibogaine, uh, which is um, a psychedelic derived from a plant that grows in West Africa. Um, are you, but it's stripped you pronouncing out. it differently than I've heard it? I've heard it pronounced as Iboga. Yeah, uh, Iboga. Okay. Uh, or, yeah, I, I think Ibogaine is the actual molecule. Iboga is the tree, I think. Okay, um, okay got it, got it. Um, but uh, 18MC strips out the psychedelic experience from it. So the thought is, is you could, in, in MindMed's particular case, uh, 18MC is being used for the treatment of opioid addiction, um, mm. but you won't have a trip. You won't have to spend, you know, eight hours in a room going through the experience, but just the drug will do the work. Now, at Field Trip, our philosophy is we want people to lean into the psychedelic experience. We don't want psychedelics to be used just like a, an antidepressant where it just fixes you because, you know, our belief is you got to do the work. You know, it's it's growth is something that takes effort. Um, either the universe is going to make you grow or you can, you know, choose to grow consciously. And, and psychedelics, are, I think, are a great tool to, to do that growth. And sometimes that growth may be in terms of healing your traumas and, and dealing with your depression or anxiety or PTSD. Or sometimes, you know, and I think certainly what motivates me a little bit more is uh, choosing to grow in, in terms of an elevation, taking you from baseline to above as opposed to from below baseline, like if you have depression and anxiety up to back to baseline. But, um, 
but we lean into the psychedelic experience. We want you to have the trip. We want you to, you know, have the insights and awareness and, and relive those past moments that may be causing the issues that you're dealing with currently, because that's where we think the magic happens is in, is in confronting your demons, uh, not taking a pill to avoid them. You is know, the, the, is the um, psychotherapy assisted uh, treatment protocol that you like to use, um, is it dealing with the conscious mind, the unconscious mind? Because I did a hypnosis session for the first time ever in my life last week yeah. with this guy in one of my men's community. And that was kind of a bizarre experience. Like I noticed my aura ring picked up on it as sleep. Like it picked up, picked up on it as REM and deep sleep, but cool. I felt some conscious during the experience. I'm just wondering what, what the strategy is with field trip with that stuff. Yeah, it, it, it's both. I mean, the thing that happens when you're on a psychedelic trip, is it really, opens up the unconscious mind uh, and brings it into the conscious. So you can, you know, kind of like remem remembering a dream like a dream is an unconscious experience, but you can remember a dream and, and bring it into the conscious mind. And, and that's exactly what happens with psychedelics, which is the psychedelic opens your unconscious mind. Very often you'll become aware of something that you didn't become aware of on a, a neurobiological perspective. They've actually done fMRIs, which is a functional magnetic resonance imaging um, work with people on psychedelics and what they see when you're on a psychedelic, at least with psilocybin, and I can send you the pictures. Parts of the brain start talking to each other uh, that either don't talk very frequently or, or, you know, never talk to each other. And so all of a sudden your brain is making these connections uh, across cross-functional areas of your, of literally your, your, you know, brain mass. Uh, and that's why people all of a sudden will report either re-experiencing something from childhood or they'll notice like music speaks to them on a different level or color has way more pronounced effect or emotional impact because uh, you have essentially synesthesia happening in your brain as a result of the psychedelic. And so often people have memories or insights or create awareness um, that stays with them. You know, people often forget their dreams, but generally people are able to remember their psychedelic experiences. And then when you go into the therapy, you take what your unconscious mind revealed and, and talk through it on, on a conscious level, which, you know, if you go into the psychology and philosophy of it, most people would say would then, you know, affect your unconscious mind afterwards. But, uh, that's, that's a sort of separate conversation. Interesting. Um, man, I got a lot of questions here. So, um, <laughs> uh, the, 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 um, man. Uh, let me start with this. So I talk to a lot of guys with the regular content production that I put on my channel, because one of the things that kind of pivoted me with what I was doing, I remember when I was talking to you, you know, about setting up this channel, I think it was 2014 that I did. Uh, and you're like, yeah, what are you up to? And I was telling you about the channel and I was probably around that time, just hanging out with entrepreneurs and the rides and just kind of interviewing them sort of thing. Yeah. But one of the things that happened to me, which I didn't realize until, um, probably a good year after the fact was I had all the symptoms of PTSD from a uh, unhealthy attachment to this one chick that I was dating at that time that I'd broken up with. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, it took, it took a little bit of self-discovery for myself and it took some, not, not some, but quite a few conversations that I had to have with other people and diving down rabbit holes when it came to um, human nature uh, you know, looking at Evo psych and stuff like that. And it probably took me a good few years to really come to the realization. And even then, like, you know, to this day, I still feel a little bit of vulnerability to like a condition that the red pill calls one-itis, right? Where you can have an unhealthy attachment to one woman when you can't let go of something sort of thing. And I see a lot of guys have it, um, just cause they subscribe to a belief system that isn't, that doesn't accurately reflect human behavior and nature. Like a lot of guys will watch a lot of Disney stuff and pay a lot of attention to media and the news and they'll think, oh, sugar and spice and all things nice. nice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how could this woman possibly, you know, alter the course of my life? Yet there's men every day going through the divorce machine that take their own lives, right? Mm -hmm. So um, like with stuff like this, is this app, is this application broader than just dealing with something like PTSD? Like, is this something that can be used for, um, like there's a lot of people on SSRIs, you know, dealing with depression. I know you talked about not, not particularly wanting to focus on that, but how, how broad is the scope of treatment that field trip can, you know, really participate in? It's incredibly broad. Um, you know, it's, it's, 
it's a little bit of science, but it's a little bit of terminology, which is, you know, in, in your particular reference, it's like, yeah, you had PTSD. You know, most people think about PTSD as being something associated with veterans, but any War, trauma yeah. experience um, can create its own instance. You know, they they talk about how in the community and, and the current scientific belief is that there's no such thing as a bad trip. You know, if you grew up in the 80s, like I did, uh, or earlier, you probably watched all sorts of like dare to not do drugs videos and you know mm. this is your brain on you know this is your brain on drugs with a frying pan with the yeah exactly, exactly and all that kind of stuff and, or like people jumping out of windows like, the shit out know. of everybody yeah exactly uh people jumping out of windows after doing lsd and all that kind of stuff yeah. and listen you know the truth is is like that did happen it didn't happen with nearly the frequency you would think um uh based on what we were taught but there are risks those are powerful molecules but generally the belief is that there's no such thing as a bad trip per se um there are hard trips and there are easy trips. Easy trips are exactly what you'd expect, you know, wonderful colors, feelings of love, unity, all of these positive emotions. And there are hard trips that can get dark and, and scary and, and challenging um, and really challenge your sense of self-identity. Now, a hard trip can become a bad trip if it's not given with the right therapeutic support. You know, most psychedelic therapists will say like, if you encounter something terrifying during a trip, don't run away from it, go towards it because there's something to be learned. Your, your unconscious mind is telling you something uh, that you need to confront and, and process. Um, but if if you don't do it with the right supports, if you feel scared, it can actually create its own instance of PTSD. You know, that's only in your mind. And if people kind of wonder about it, it's like, think about like having a nightmare. You wake up from a nightmare and you're scared, right? It's affected you. It's you physically, you know, your fight or flight system is, is engaged. Um, the same thing can happen with a, a trip, but it can go much deeper than most bad dreams would. Um, so PTSD is, is an experience that's much broader than just, uh, you know, being present in, in war, you know, and all of us experience traumas all, you know, in the work I've done, you know, in, with Erwin, uh, who's, who's my coach, or I don't even know how you describe him. You know, when you're a kid, you experience traumas, you have to, how many times do your parents say no to something you want to do? And so what kids do is they kind of build up emotional walls because they don't want to constantly be angry about hearing be being told, no, don't stick your finger in that. No, don't pick that up. Uh, and so it's a lifelong journey to process all of these traumas and feelings and emotions and, and take down those emotional walls. Um, and to the extent that psychedelics are opening your unconscious mind uh, to new experiences, new perspectives, they can be used across any number of potential applications. Uh, and within our clinics, we're, we're somewhat restricted um, jurisdiction by jurisdiction because of guidance from the colleges. But general rule is within field trip we'll treat any form of mental health condition you know ranging from the most severe treatment resistant depression uh, to people who just have adjustment disorder or dysthymia which is basically they're feeling low they're feeling sad and they can't seem to bust out of it um, and all of them can potentially benefit because at the end of the day that the mechanism of action is really the same which is psychedelics by and large are rapid antidepressants they make you feel happier almost immediately uh, but then uh, they do two other things. One is they open your unconscious mind so you can revisit things that may have been packed away or that you're not willing to go into, um, you know, and, and that your brain has put or your mind has put conscious walls against. Uh, so you can confront them and start to process that trauma. Um, and then thirdly, uh, they create a period of neuroplasticity. Um, so uh, what happens is your brain, what, when you have consistently, say, depressed thoughts, uh, the more you have a consistent thought, the more that pathway in your brain gets cemented uh, and it makes it easier to have that thought over and over again. And so essentially what, um, what psychedelics do, is, as Michael Pollan described it, is if you can imagine like a lane uh, with cross-country ski tracks in it, uh, psychedelics are kind of like a, a fresh batch of um, powdery snow on top of that. So those old pathways that you're used to using can get, you know, essentially removed and you can up, open up new pathways that may be more productive, more optimistic, happier. Um, and so you have this period of neuroplasticity where the therapy really kicks in where, you know, if you're doing the cognitive behavioral therapy shortly after a psychedelic session and your therapist is using motivational interviewing or behavioral activation, these techniques that have been shown to work, they just take a long time. Uh, you're much more receptive to that. And, mm -hmm. and so you can change your habits. You can change your outlooks much faster than you could if you're just doing cognitive behavior therapy. So between these three layers of the immediate lift, um, the uh, ability to process old experiences and the neuroplasticity, um, that, that's across 
everything. You know, you don't even have to have a mental health condition to potentially benefit from that. Um, to uh, get a session at one of your clinics, like in like in Toronto, you know, for example, um, do you have to have a referral from your medical doctor? Do you have to try conventional psychotherapy first? Like, what do you have to do before you can? That, you know, that's right. Your and dot your eyes before you can take them as a patient. Yeah. So in Toronto, we will treat any treatment resistant mental health condition, which means you had to have tried at least two courses of conventional treatment. Mm. Uh, that could be cognitive behavioral therapy and one antidepressant. It could be two antidepressants. It could be any number of techniques, mm. uh, but you have to have tried two without satisfactory success. Um, and have you guys tried um, any combination of hypnotherapy with ketamine or are they testing it with uh, psilocybin? Uh, we're, we're not doing hypnotherapy uh, with any of these right now. We're just doing cognitive behavioral therapy uh, mm. associated with it because I think by and large, the psychedelic experience when you're on ketamine or, or psilocybin is kind of like being hypnotized. hypnotized. It takes you into your unconscious mind, but I'm, I'm just speculating on that. I don't actually know. Um, but in Toronto, it's treatment-resistant mental health conditions, but it can be any treatment-resistant mental health condition, PTSD, depression, anxiety, even eating disorders we'll, we'll consider working with. Um, but that's a function of the regulations and, and guidance in, in Ontario. Uh, in LA, we have a lot more flexibility. Um, so treatment-resistant mental health conditions, people can come in if they have, you know, they want to try um uh, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Just if they've been recently diagnosed with ketamine, uh, depression and they haven't tried anything else, that's okay. And we'll even treat people, um, like I said, who are just having a hard time. Uh, you know, they broke up with someone and are having time, hard time getting their mood improved or they're just feeling down. Um, you know, these are all things, you know, at the end of the day, the, the, the real emphasis, and it kind of gets lost in, in the word psychedelic, but the real emphasis is this is therapy, right? And therapy can benefit anyone. You don't have to be sad or depressed to benefit from therapy. You could be happy. In fact, most therapists say the best, most productive therapy are when people are open and happy and, and feeling good. Mm -hmm. You know, that's when you can enhance their lives. But um, the drug just catalyzes the therapy. It just makes it easier. It makes it easier for people to go deeper and take down their emotional walls, but it's therapy. Um, and so if you can benefit from therapy, which is pretty much everybody, uh, you can benefit from psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Now, you know, there's some contraindications. If you have a history of psychosis, if you have addictions, all that kind of stuff, it may not mm. be appropriate for you, but by and large, it's, uh, it's open to most people. Got it. Um, with anything, you're always going to have critics and pushback. Um, what are the obstacles for you guys dealing with that? We've been fortunate that there hasn't been a lot of obstacles. We live in a world where there's been a whole bunch of convergent trends that are leading to this moment, which many people call the new psychedelic renaissance or the psychedelic renaissance. Um, and those are mental health has gone mainstream. You see that all the time with the, you know, the bell let's talk ads. You see that with um, companies like Calm and Headspace achieving multi-billion dollar valuations for meditation and mindfulness. You have a, we live in a world where cannabis has gone mainstream. And so a lot of those uh, old tropes that we were talk, taught about drugs have disappeared. Um, you have, and, and I think most importantly, the research around psychedelics coming out, showing not only that most psychedelics are safe and non-addictive and, and almost impossible to overdose on, uh, but they're also extremely effective, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and so it's not, when, when issues of stigma come up, I don't really have to try and, um, rationalize it or convince them i just point to the data saying like, listen the data shows they're safe and they're effective you know if you mm -hmm. want to believe the movies you saw in the 1980s about this that's ultimately your choice but you're choosing to ignore the current information and and to be clear no one in field trip uh, right now is advocating that everyone run out and do psychedelics that would not be a good outcome because that creates the risk of a lot of negative outcomes and some bad trips turning or some hardships turning into bad trips and you have that risk of you know people jumping out of a window or something along those lines but when it comes to like the thoughtful implementation of starting with a me medical program and eventually expanding into a wellness program uh, mm -hmm. where people have qualified providers and ensure legal access to safe analytic analytically tested supply it's, it's really hard to argue against that right now. Um, you know, it's just uh, the evidence is, is too persuasive and, and the need too urgent. I, I don't know if you saw, but there's a study that came out of 
I think California saying like one in four millennials had contemplated suicide during like the, the pandemic. It's like, we have a real mental health problem. And when you look at uh, the current treatments, they just don't work. They, mm -hmm. I mean, they work for some people and I, I don't want to diminish that. Like if you have benefited from using antidepressants, that's fantastic. But for majority of people, they don't work. People, you know, they, antidepressants have a 75% non-adherence rates, which means people stop using them within six months of starting, not because they're better, uh, but because they found the side effects to be too intolerable or they saw no improvement. Um, yeah, the side effects with SSRIs are brutal for most people. Exactly. Uh, and so you have a world where we have, you know, mental health becoming more problematic pandemic. We have a huge problem with digital isolation, you know, with the internet, which has benefits and its limitations. You have these sound chambers, you know, these echo mm -hmm. chambers where ideas and ideologues just get bounced off each other and people take positions that get reinforced and reinforced because they're not seeing or being exposed to alternative viewpoints. All of these kind of circumstances are creating great challenges in terms of people um, finding emotional, you know, healthy emotional balances. And, uh, and, and so psychedelics kind of are emerging at a perfect time uh, yeah. where people seem to be more open-minded towards once stigmatized medicines. Cool. All right. Um, I want to respect your time because I know you got to bounce for another uh, call. And I have a bunch of uh, quick questions here that popped up in the chat while we were running it. Um, Steve said, Canadian legal aid only covers around 800 for counsel. I saw mitigation of risk over representation. Every case, take the deal mentality. Uh, it's more of a statement than a question. So let's skip over that. Thanks for that, okay. Steve. Uh, do, 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 do. here's one, uh, good morning. Will this new treatment protocol give hope for treating narcissistic BPD conditions? Uh, quite possibly. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know specifically around, um, that particular condition, so it's hard for me to say, but again, the, the general kind of, uh, mechanism of action of psychedelic therapies should treat most mental health conditions because most mental health conditions do arise from some degree of, uh, emotional or mental trauma at some point in their lives uh, that haven't been addressed or rectified. And um, and so to the extent that's true about narcissistic BPD, uh, it would make sense that these treatment options are, are potentially beneficial. All right. And uh, just some feedback there. Loving the show. The ketamine churches. I've, I've not heard of that. What's a ketamine church in Toronto? I don't know about ketamine church, but I know there have been five or six churches in Canada that have been given the same exemptions as have been given to um, some ayahuasca churches or have, some uh, churches have been given right to use ayahuasca as part of their sacraments. Okay. Um, and uh, so maybe it's the same thing. All right. Ketamine churches in Toronto definitely hold promise for progress here in Canada. Richard proven time and time again, you need to be on the Joe Rogan podcast already. Great discussion. Well, reach out to Joe and... Tell them to call my people, man. Uh, I'll, I'll join you on that. I'd love to be on the Joe yeah, Rogan show. Yeah, there's lots to unpack there. Um, Two so guys quick, with beards. Let's do it. <laughs> so just real quick, just to wrap up before you go. So where can people learn more about you, Field Trip, if they want to become an investor? I know you guys are planning on going public soon. Yeah, uh, we're listing on the Canadian Securities Exchange next week. Uh, October 7th should be our first trading day. That may slip a day. Um, but uh, if you want to find out more about the company, uh, go to meetfieldtrip.com. That's our investor relations corporate site. If you're interested in treatments, go to fieldtriphealth.com. That has all the information about our clinics. We have clinics in Toronto, New York, and LA right now. Uh, Chicago is in construction and should be open next month. Uh, and then we have two more clinics that should be up and running before the end of the year. We haven't disclosed the locations yet. And just being sensitive to soon being a public company, I got to disclose it through a press release as opposed to right now. But you'll see more and more. We're hoping to scale up to at least 75 locations across North America before 2023, 2024. Cool. All right. Well, appreciate that. Um, hang out for a couple of minutes, you know, when we get off the air, just so I can talk to you a little bit more about some other updates on the business side. Okay, um, cool. Ronan, thanks for joining me, guys. Make sure you uh, hit like if there's somebody that needs to see this or you want to learn more about Field Trip or Ronan, check them out. Uh, also on Monday on the Before the Trainwreck show, I've got um, John coming on, who's the guy that was uh, the ex-husband of that woman that was the pastor turned stripper turned OnlyFans foddery. So, uh, he was with Rolo last night. I talked to him this morning. Uh, we're going to put him on before the train wreck and see if we can reverse engineer the train wreck that happened in his life and and uh, get some clarity for him and for you guys. Uh, thanks for uh, watching, guys. Ronan, appreciate it, dude. Of course, man. Thank you.